Uh, it is good to be back. Uh, like Rich said, we just got back from the, the Devoted Conference. And um, I was just talking with Pastor Brian this week about conferences and those kinds of things. And it, it was just, I was super thankful for the conference. We had a great time, a good time to be together. It's like an injection into our, our times together, you know. But it's no replacement for just week in, week out, body life in the church, preaching here, and it's just, you know, you, I come back, get back in the groove, and it's just like, man, this is where it's at. So, I'm glad to be back, and uh, had a sweet time at the conference, but thrilled to be um, back with you guys. And tonight, we are back in our study of 1 John, so if you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 John. First John, chapter 3. We, uh, you're with us last time, you remember we finished up chapter 2, and we are heading into chapter 3. And it's really been a joy studying this book together. Um, we've been taking our time, but we've been learning so much as we've walked through these pages, uh, these verses that John has, has written to us. And we've learned that John's goal in this letter is what? Assurance, right. He's, he's writing. Okay, maybe we haven't learned. Um, I'm just kidding. I know you're all bashful. You don't like to just shout out. But um, we've learned about assurance. Yes, John wants us to, to have assurance. That's his goal. He wants the church to have assurance that we belong to God. He wants us to have deep joy in communing with Christ. He wants us to have confidence that we're on the path of life. He wants to build our discernment to help us distinguish between what's true and false so that we're not led astray. And that's, that's really John's purpose in writing. And he's writing these things because the church that, that he penned this letter to was, was a church in crisis. We've seen that. There was a lot of false teaching floating around from people who profess to be Christians uh, in this day. And the false teachers, or like John calls them, the Antichrists, had even come from their own church. So that kind of ups the ante a little bit. Even though they claimed to have this true knowledge of God, these, these teachers, uh, they were twisting the truth about Jesus. They were minimizing their own sin. And instead of being content to live like Christ in opposition to the world, they loved the world. They loved the favor that they received from the world. And they were living for the world, and they were enticing others to follow suit, saying, hey, you can be a Christian and still still indulge in sin. They seemed religious on the surface, but they weren't sacrificially loving other people. They were greedy. They were hoarding their possessions. They loved their possessions too much to share them with people that were actually in need. And most of all, they were undermining the teaching of the Apostle John. So, John picks up his pen and he writes to this church under these pressures, and pressures that are very similar to the pressures that we're facing today, right? We too are in the final hour, just like these believers were. And we need help navigating the Christian life amidst a lot of confusion in our day in evangelicalism. So John writes for assurance, to assure us in the gospel, to remind us of what Christ has done for us, and to equip us, really, to navigate this treacherous journey of discipleship that we're on. And it's treacherous because we are still in, God has saved us and left us in a world that is in opposition to us. And last time we said that this second half of the letter 
um, really starts here halfway down in chapter 2, the second half, from chapter 2 all the way through the end of the letter is really the second, second half of the letter. And in that half, John's essentially laying out this field guide for us. So you can think of it like, like some instructions to kind of navigate this journey, right? It's a field guide for navigating a deceptive and alluring world that we're in. And this guide will equip us not just to avoid the traps and the cliffs or whatever that are around us that we may not see, but it will, it will also equip us to flourish along that path, to live lives that are fruitful for the glory of Christ, joyful, um, full of reward and meaning. So, he does this in the back half, again, just by review, by, by giving us a few instructions. And that really starts in, in verse 15 in chapter 2. So, do you remember what he's told us up to this point? As far as commands, the first one in verse 15 is, do not love the world. Yeah, do not love the world. That's where he, he launches from. That was his first really bit of instruction in this, in this field guide. John doesn't want us to invest in a deceptive system, the world. He doesn't want us to invest in, in, a, in a world that's set against God. He doesn't want us to be enamored with sin and idolatry. That's kind of the idea, to love the world. There's lots of reasons for that, but the one he gives is, he says, the world's not going to last. It's not lasting. It's passing away, he says. Instead, he wants us living for the Father, for the coming world that's going to last. He wants us doing the will of God for, for what's real, true, and, and lasting. So don't love the world. Then his second instruction comes all the way down in verse 24, where he tells us to let what we've heard abide in us. Do you see that down in verse 24? That's the, other, that's the next command. Let what we've heard abide in us. In other words, he's, he's telling us not to forsake truth. Don't forsake the truth, what the apostles taught. Let what you've heard abide, remain in you. And we have, we have that truth in the, the documents in our Bibles, don't we? John knows that the only way that we're going to be able to navigate this deceptive world, the only way we're going to be able to, to, to get through the deception that's coming from these antichrists, is to know the truth and continue growing in it. So that was number two. Number three, the third instruction of this field guide was given in verse 28 here, chapter 2, where he tells us to abide in Christ. Kind of similar to what he just told us, but with a slight difference. Abide in Christ. In other words, John wants us to grow in our dependence on Jesus. That is a dependence on his words, but a dependence on Jesus. He knows as we learn to consistently abide in Jesus, moment by moment, that the Lord will produce abundant fruit in our lives, even in the midst of a world system that hates us. So we looked at that the last time we were together in depth. Well, tonight, God, John is going to add another very interesting instruction to this field guide. And in our text, John's actually going to command us to behold the greatness of God's love. It's an interesting command. Behold, he's commanding us to behold the greatness of God's love, the love that he's freely given to us as he calls us his children. So John wants us to slow down and to, to see something glorious. He wants us to perceive with the eyes of faith how incredibly secure we are as God's very own children. And that's very encouraging in a world where it doesn't feel like we're secure, right? He wants us to root our identity in the fact that we really are God's offspring. 
and that we really will be completely transformed at the return of Christ. Like He's going to keep us. We will be transformed. And why does he want us to, to slow down and let this seep into our hearts at this point in the letter? Because he knows that as this vision takes root, this vision about God and his love for us, and the security we have in that, as that takes root, as we really come to know and to believe his love for us, as we sink our teeth down into this, this absolutely sure hope that we have, he knows that we will grow in pure devotion to Christ. We will become more like him in the here and now. Let's go ahead and read this, this text. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So this is beholding God's love, the command to behold his love. Now, if if we went on reading in chapter 3, you'd see that this theme of being God's children, that that theme continues, and it really continues all the way down to the end of the chapter, chapter 3. And that's why I'm calling this message Part 1, Children of God Part 1, because we're going to continue studying this theme over the next few weeks as we make our way through Chapter 3, hopefully by the end of the semester. So I think we'll get done with Chapter 3 by Christmas break. That's the goal. You guys try to hold me to it, okay? He introduced this this theme, this theme of being children of God, or this family theme, at the end of Chapter 2. So this is kind of something John likes to do that you'll notice. He'll introduce something at the end of a paragraph that seems like it's out of nowhere, because that's where he's going in the next one. So that's what he does in, in verse 29. He says, if you know of chapter 2, look, at with, look, with, look with me. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness, this is the first time he's used this phrase, this has been born of him. Has been born of him. So in verse 28, in verse 29, at the end of the verse, he's about to launch into a new section here that's focused on the theme of being God's own children, and he's going he's gonna to work that out um, in the paragraphs to come. And he says here at the end of the chapter, those born of God, God's children, will practice righteousness. They're going to progressively learn to live like Jesus because they're born from Jesus. They're born from God. And now, when John mentions this concept that we're born of God, he, it's like he slows down. And he helps us to unpack the significance of this glorious theme in chapter 3. He doesn't want us to miss it. So he actually commands us to just slow down and look at it. Okay? Behold it. The first thing he tells us to do when he comes to this idea about being in God's family is that we should marvel at the glory of being loved by God. He's being born as his child. So that's why I'm calling this message, Beholding the Greatness of the Father's Love holding the greatness of God's fatherly love for us in Christ. Now, like I said, this is an interesting command. Now, why do I say that? Well, I wouldn't think of this as like part of a field guide naturally. You know, it's kind of like, okay, what should I do? Okay, God loves me, yeah, great. But he's saying, no, no, no. 
you need to understand the significance of this. And it's, John is mature, obviously. Um, he's an aged apostle. And he knows our hearts are prone to not behold the love of God. He knows our hearts are prone to minimize God's love. To doubt God's love, we may even say. And I think we're prone to that, especially as we suffer in this world. As, we're set, as the world is set against us, and we encounter these difficulty in, our last, in these last days, we're tempted to minimize or even just all out doubt God's love. Does he really love me? If he loves me, why am I going through this? We're often tempted to entertain harsh and hard views of God. We feel abandoned by him at times. We feel alone. Many times our lives get harder when we come to Christ, not easier. And we're tempted to doubt. Or, we begin to fall prey to the idea that God's love is like our love. It's fickle. It's changing. It's subject to the whims of the moment. And this doubt is only compounded when we disobey. You follow? We know that we've displeased the Lord, and we think He's disappointed with us, He's frustrated with us. We fear coming to Him because we're unsure of how we'll be received when we come. We fear that He's growing impatient with us. We envision Him as just putting up with us or just tolerating us in our weakness, holding us at arm's length, maybe. And we may not say it out loud, but we function as though our relationship with Him is contingent on our obedience. It's contingent. We try to do better. We try to get back in His good graces. We try to show Him that we're serious this time. Right? We may even try to tell ourselves the Lord loves us, but then our hearts immediately produce a hundred reasons why that, ah, is that really true? How can I really know that? It seems like presumption. How do I know I'm saved? He shouldn't love me. And so... We go on living day by day with an undercurrent of anxiety, this undercurrent of of uncertainty in our hearts toward the Lord. We may even begin to resent the Lord because we feel perpetually defeated, perpetually guilty, and constantly weighed down. And I think this is very important to underscore, okay? So there's a culture out there that perverts God's love in a different way. You know, they, it's kind of a therapeutic view of God's love that kind of skirts around sin. God loves everybody and doesn't confront anybody. And I was going to talk about that, but I actually dropped that out of my notes because I think this temptation is more relevant. What I'm talking about right now is more relevant to us in this church. And the reason is because I think this begins to happen subtly in our lives, even in a healthy church. How so? When you get into a good church, it's clearly teaching God's word. God begins to peel back the layers of your heart. You begin to see sin, motivations, implicate you've never seen before, right? You're exposed, and that's, that's a good thing. Um, because that's the first steps of like real transformation, real growth. And it happens in no other way other than being exposed and having to own that and come out of that. But Satan is crafty, and our hearts are deceitful. And so what often happens is he uses this as an opportunity to discourage the believer, 
to turn them away from Christ when they see sin. To fuel their pride. That's really what's happening. To fuel their pride that makes them think they're too bad to go to God. Or they've got to fix themselves before they can come to God. And so even in a good church, we can often fall prey to doubting God's love, to doubting the love that He has for us, or to minimizing it, to not see the intensity of it um, for us. Or to say it in John's language, to neglect the glorious truth that God loves us, to not behold it. So if you resonate with that at some level, and I'm sure we all do um, at different levels, don't be utterly discouraged. Like if, if what I've just described is, is you. An old Puritan pastor by the name of John Owen faced these same doubts in himself and in the people that he shepherded. And he wrote a book called Communion with the Triune God. It is excellent, even if you just read the first 40 pages of it. It is worth its weight in those first 40 pages, okay? So, Communion with the Triune God. And listen, listen to what he said on this issue. He said, Few can carry up in their hearts and minds to this height by faith as to rest their souls in the love of the Father. Did you hear that? Few can do this, can, can carry up in their, their hearts and their minds to this height by faith to rest their souls in the love of the Father. They live below it in the troublesome region of hopes and fears, storms and clouds. But all here, talking about that higher plane, all here is serene and quiet, living in the love of God. But how to attain to this pitch, to this height, they know not. This is the will of God, that he may always be eyed, seen as benign, kind, tender, loving, and unchangeable therein. And that peculiarly as the Father, as the great fountain and spring of all gracious communications and fruits of love. He goes on to say, this will be exceedingly effectual to endear your soul to God i.e. seeing him this way, in the fullness of his love for you. This will be exceedingly effectual, meaning it will be productive for you to endear your soul to God, to cause you to delight in him, and to make your abode with him. Many saints have no greater burden in their lives than that their hearts do not come clearly and fully up constantly to delight and rejoice in God. They're grieved that there is still an indisposedness of spirit that essentially prevents them from close walking with him. What's the problem, he says? What is the bottom of this distemper? Is it not their unskillfulness or neglect of this duty of holding communion with the Father in love? Meaning, this text, beholding God in love. Now, here's the best phrase of the entire book. You ready? So much as we see of the love of God, so much shall we delight in Him and no more. So much as we see of the love of God, meaning however high and wide we see it, that's how much we will delight in God and no more. 
That is so true. So in one way, this is, you hate to rank the commands in this letter, but this is one of the more foundational commands. And I think if John were here, he would agree with me. I would be agreeing with John. Let me put it the other way around. That's better. All right? John Owen received this insight from studying passages like the one we're going to study tonight from the Apostle John. The Apostle knows that we constantly and daily need a fresh biblical vision of God and His love for us, that we need to behold it and to receive it afresh in faith. John the Apostle, he also learned this lesson. Later in the letter, this old wise apostle says this. He says in chapter 5, verse 16, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. So we've come to know, we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Chapter 5, verse 16. John is rested in the fact that God loves him. He loves him in Christ, that he is dearly loved. This was his identity. In his gospel, what does he call himself? Remember? John refers to himself, right, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I think we're tempted to hear that and be like, what? You know, like, what the other 11? You know? You know, love them? But that's not the point. His point was to, to not even, to just point away from himself. The only thing he wants people to know about him is he's loved. He's loved by Christ. This has seeped down into his identity. It's not a boast. And John wants each of us to know this bottomless joy. To think of ourselves as the disciple whom Jesus loved. All the apostles taught in these terms, it's not just John. I think of Paul. He defines himself as... Uh, he says, this life I now live, I live by faith, the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So loved by God. The church is called beloved, 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 all throughout the New Testament. This is a bottomless joy for us. It's a rock of refuge that we are loved by God. And so he commands us here to take a close look at the greatness of his love for us, the superlative quality of the kind of love that God has given to us. And now in the rest of our passage, John's going to tell us why this love is so great. And he's just, just scratching the surface, okay? But this is why this love is so great. So we're going to look at four glorious realities about God's love. Four glorious realities. He's, he's going to urge us to receive these realities about God's love. To behold them is his language, but that's the language of faith. See it and receive it, right? Behold God's love. Because he knows that it'll be transformative for us. And on the negative, he knows that we're tempted in all manners to doubt. All right? So number one, what does he say? He says it's a love that's freely fixed upon us. This first glorious reality that he sort of says in passing is it's a love that's freely fixed. It's given to us. It's his language. In verse one. He says, see or behold what kind of love the Father has given to us. The Father's given to us. So the very first thing that John says about God's love is that the Father has given it to us. So you're thinking, okay, 
How'd you get that? The love is freely fixed upon us. Well, he could have just said, behold, God loves you. Right? But he doesn't say it that way. He says, behold, the quality of love that God has given to you. So he's bestowed it. He emphasizes that God has, has given his love, or some translations say he's, he's bestowed it upon us. The point is that God has freely fixed his love upon us. He's given it to us, and it remains upon us. It's his gracious gift. And when God sets his eternal affections on someone, it cannot be undone. When he pledges his love, when he promises that it will endure, he will not fail in his promises. In his gospel, it says, Jesus loved them to the end. And I think it was just freighted with uh, just eternal significance. He loved them all the way to the end. When they forsook him, he continued to love. He laid his life down for them. God won't fail when he gives his love away. One, this, the same Puritan pastor, John Owen, he wrote like that entire book about this issue. And one of the first things he argues in the book is that we have to realize God's love for us does not change. It doesn't change. He says God's love is equal, constant, it's not capable of being augmented or dimmed. God's love isn't like a dimmer switch in your basement. You can't just, it's, it doesn't wax and wane. It shines like the sun. It doesn't grow to eternity, he says. It doesn't ever diminish. It is an eternal love that had no beginning and that will have no ending. And it can't be heightened by any act of ours. And get this, it can't be lessened by anything in us. And when we hear that, what does your heart do? What? Like, how can you say that? Are you serious? How, how is that possible with all of my sin? Isn't God displeased when I sin? Don't we read text on that? Well, yes. God does feel displeasure when we sin. God will even discipline us, discipline us as he trains us not to sin. But he is grieved and he's even provoked and he even lets us feel his indignation as an evidence of his love. That is the proof of which he loves us. It's precisely because we have this fixed and unchanging love upon us as his people. And I love the way that Owen puts this in his book. I'm going to quote him a lot in this, this, uh, this message, just forewarning, okay? He says, The love of God in itself is the eternal purpose and act of his will. This is no more changeable than God himself. If it were, no flesh could be saved. But it changeth not, and we are not consumed. Now, I love this pastoral insight here. What then? Does he love his people in their sinning? Yes. His people, not their sinning. Does he alter his love toward them? Not the purpose of his will, but, he says, the dispensations of his grace, meaning their experience of it. He rebukes them, he chastens them, he hides his face from them, he smites them, he fills them with a sense of his indignation. But 
woe, woe would it be to us should he change his love or take away his kindness from us. You hear that? Woe, woe would it be to us should he change in his love or take away his kindness from us. Though, he goes on to say, those very things which seem to be demonstrations of the change of his affections toward us do as clearly proceed from love as those which seem to be the most genuinely loving. In other words, the chastening and the sweet experiences of his presence are equally his love toward us. And we interpret those as not being loving. But they are equal, John Owen said. Such a great pastoral insight. So another lie that we've got to combat as believers on this point is, is when we don't feel like God loves us. You know what I'm talking about? For whatever the reason. Okay? There can be lots of reasons. But we don't feel it. Even though God's love for us is fixed in Christ, we often have fluctuations of it in our experience. Sometimes we sense His smile and affections. He seems near to us. Other times we feel forsaken. We feel alone. But both are from His hand for our good. You ever think about that? How we feel both of those experiences are for our good. How so? The other first one's obvious. Okay, we're enjoying the presence of God, enjoying His love. What about when we feel forsaken? He is often teaching us when He withholds these things not to rely on our experiences. Not to rely on our emotions or how we feel in the moment, but on His Word alone. What did Christ feel in the garden? Gethsemane. Agony. That's what He felt. Agony. There was no still, small voice, quiet peace in His heart when He was determining what the will of God was in that moment. It was agony. And He submitted His will to the Father. And yeah, there was serenity and peace in the face of the opposition that came after that, but there was agony in the prayer. And so when we feel forsaken, He's often teaching us not to rely on our experiences, but to live on every word of His mouth. And that's hard. I'm not saying that's easy. That is a hard thing to go through, especially when you are used to, be, you're used to operating off of your emotions. Okay? But that is the best thing God can do for us. It stabilizes us, and it teaches us to depend on His Word. And it does not mean that God does not love us. Precisely the opposite. God's love has been freely given to us. And John looks us in the eye here and helps us to combat this lie of thinking about everything is dependent on our our emotions or how we feel. And he tells us that God's love has been fixed on us freely without price, And we've got to behold it with the eyes of faith and not reject the promise because we don't feel it in the moment. All right? So this is so radically important that we understand God's love for us is fixed and unchanging. Why? Well, because this is the very foundation of our communion with God. Like, this is is baseline, okay, In, in our communion with God. In other words, if we don't have this, if we're doubting this, we're not going to commune with God. We run from Him. The child doesn't run to the father who's angry with him. 
If we believe the lie that God's love for us waxes and wanes as we obey and disobey, then we will never truly love God. Later in this letter, John's going to say that, that we love God because, the reason we love him, is because he, what? First loved us. Yeah. First loved us. The Christian life is built on this sure foundation of the unchanging love of God. More on that in a bit. But our hearts might be tempted at this point to ask, well, how, how can he love us like this? This consistently, right? When we are so sinful at times. How can I be sure that I'm not just presuming on his love? Well, John's next reality gives us the answer. He says that God's love is a love that has made us his children. It's a love that has made us his children. So he says, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And this is really what he's drawn out in the, in the command. He's saying, look at this love, and here it is. We're children. God's love is radically displayed in the fact that he has called us his children. Now, I don't want you to, to hear this and not hear the full weight of what John is saying here. When John says the Father has called us children of God, he's not just saying he's sort of given us a new name, like, yeah, I know you're children. He's not merely saying that. Calling here goes deeper than that. It's a calling that fundamentally changed our nature. It changed our entire identity. It's a, you can think of it as a summons, okay? It's a summons to a new birth, we might say. It's a calling forth into existence. Now, where am I getting that? Well, just so you see, I'm not reading this in here. Look back in verse 29. Okay, right? Remember where we came from at the end of the chapter, first chapter 2. At the end of that verse, he says, Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, the reason we're children now is because we've been born of God. See the connection? The metaphor? So being a child is a summons to a new birth. And then if you look forward in chapter 3 to verse 9, Right there, John says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning because God's seed abides in him. Now, I'm just drawing attention to this. He says something odd, that God's seed abides in us. So he's saying that, that we're born of God. The fact that we're born of God means that we have God's seed implanted inside of us. So what does that mean? We're going to talk through that in depth next week. Which is really sweet, by the way. But... In short, I think what it means is we've been brought forth to share in God's own nature. We have the same spiritual DNA. We are of God, in other words, in that we've been born into his spiritual family, and as part of his family, we will inevitably grow to resemble our father. We're going to end up looking like our divine dad because we have his genes. Kind of crass way of putting it, but that's the point of the, of the imagery here. So when he says he's calling us children here in, in this verse, back in our verse for tonight, this isn't simply a renaming, and it's not just adoption. As sweet as those metaphors are, you know, being given a new name, being adopted, this is a complete new birth. 
And this means that our Divine Father fiercely and eternally loves the children He has called forth from the womb that He has fathered of His own initiative. He won't remove His love from His own child. In fact, this is the very way He demonstrates the grandeur of His love by making us who were not His children into His children. It shows the depth of it because of what we deserved. So how does this happen? Like, that sounds dramatic, and it is. How did it happen? How do you know if you have experienced this new birth? Well, John gives us the answer back in his gospel. So if you would, just keep your finger here and turn back to John chapter 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. Look with me in verse 9. Talking about Jesus, he says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. We're in verse 9. Verse 10. He was was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but... To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So, how do you become a child? According to verse 12, you receive him. You believe in his name. Right? So John says, to become a child, you must receive Jesus. You've got to believe in Jesus. You say, okay. Jesus has accomplished absolutely everything you need to be born again. He lived for you. He died for you. He earned your righteousness for you. He is your propitiation. means he bore the wrath of God for you. He's your intercessor. We've looked at those already in 1 John. And God even sent him because of his great love for the world. John John 3.16. To believe in Jesus then means that you've brought him in. You have availed yourself of Jesus. You see your sin and your need for Christ and that you give up any hope, any goodness that you might think you have and you receive His righteousness alone. You receive His love and the glory of it. Full and free, without payment, without price. You receive His kingship and His authority over your life. You bow to Him in glad submission because of the radical love that He's shown to you. That is believing in Jesus. That's receiving Him. And John says those people have been given the right to become children of God. Another way we could say it is we know that we are God's children because at the human level we have believed in Jesus. Is that fair? See that in verse 12? But this raises another question. Why did you believe in Jesus? John goes on to tell us in the rest of this passage, the next verse. Look in verse 13. These people who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In case you missed it, 
these people who believed were born of God. And by the way, so, so it's clear, not of man, not of the rule of flesh, not of, not of anything else, right? But God. So saying it like he does, John shows that the source of the new birth, the ultimate source of the new birth is God himself. We weren't brought forth by any kind of will of our own, even though we exercised faith in real time when the gospel came to us. We believed. But we believed by his will. That's why. Now, don't stiff-arm this, because this is where it gets glorious. Think about why this is so securing for John and for us, for those of you who believe. If you have believed in Jesus, even if your faith is weak, that didn't originate with you. Ultimately. You exercised it, but God brought you forth. He did that. That means he really did love you first. Like John said. He loved you when, he didn't, when you didn't love him. And he brought you forth. So to stiff arm this is to stiff arm the love of God. As Hebrews says, he is the author and perfecter of your faith. Your identity as a child is permanent. In a mysterious sense, eternal. I'm not denying the reality that we were children of Satan, all that stuff. But we, we are his sheep, and that's why we believe. We're of God. Which means you will always and forever be a recipient of his love. So before we leave this point, I want you to notice one more thing that John says here in this verse. He reminds us that the, the world is not going to recognize the fact that we are God's children. And it kind of seems out of place as he's kind of working through this. But here's, here's why I think he says this. He essentially says, if we flip back now to 1 John, he says, the reason why the world does not know us, here in verse 1, the end of verse 1, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So the point he's saying is the world didn't recognize Jesus. In fact, the world killed Jesus. So we shouldn't be discouraged when difficulty comes. Like, did God not love Jesus? Is that why he died? Is that why the world killed Like, no. So the world didn't recognize him, so the world won't recognize us. So we shouldn't be discouraged when difficulty comes. We definitely shouldn't doubt God's love for us or whether or not we're actually his children by our difficult circumstances. We're going to be tested in this church in the coming years in our culture because right now we've enjoyed a, a relative measure of security and status as Christians, but that is we're losing that quickly. And it will, is a time of testing from the hand of the Lord. And so we're going to have to be content at the bottom. And we don't want to go doubting that God doesn't love us anymore because we're at the bottom. All right? And that's what this church had experienced, and that's what many, many Christians have experienced throughout the ages. So, the world's hostility doesn't mean that we're not children. 
The world's hostility actually proves that we are. Now, as incredible as this is, we're going to move quickly through these last two points, but this isn't the only thing John tells us about his love. It's free and fixed, he says. It's made us into children, but it also guarantees complete conformity to Christ, which kind of flows out from these other things we've been talking about, doesn't it? It guarantees complete conformity to Christ. Verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because he, we shall see him as he is. So in this, in this verse, John's advancing the argument. The new birth, he says, we just talked about, we've been made children. That new birth guarantees that God will finish what he started. That he will bring us forth to true adulthood, in other words, to the full conformity of Jesus, his son. So John's saying that even though we're children now, the full realization hasn't happened yet. Amen. Right? We all know that. Inwardly, we've been born again. We're being renewed. We're learning to put sin off. We're learning to put righteousness on. But it is a process. And not only is it a process inwardly, but it's outwardly our bodies are decaying. So you guys might not feel that yet, but it's coming. All right? Rich feels that more than me, but I still feel it. Okay? Our bodies are decaying. We need resurrection. And we need complete transformation, complete glory. But one day, John says, this reality will arrive. The world may not recognize us now, but it will recognize us then as God's children. So when is this glorious day? It is the day, John says, when he appears. So as you read this section, you'll notice this phrase pops up several times. He uses this phrase two more times in the coming verses to talk about Jesus' first appearing, the first coming of Christ and what he accomplished there. But this one, this time, he's talking about a future coming, a second coming of Christ. Jesus will appear in glory, and we will see him in all of his resplendent glory. And for God's children, this kind of sight is transformative, John says. We will be radically transformed into new bodies if we're alive when he comes, or raised from the dead and then transformed if we've already died. Paul tells us that. We'll be rewarded for our obedience and given positions of authority based on our faithfulness in this life. Jesus himself said that. We'll enjoy full communion with Christ face to face. We will enjoy complete peace and unity with one another, and we will finally fulfill the dominion purpose for which we were created in the new earth. And this reality, our future transformation, is as sure as the sunrise. Because God's love for us guarantees that future hope. And John says, behold that. So how often do you behold that? How often does this aspect of God's love run through your mind? How often does it motivate you? Does this future hope motivate you on a day-to-day basis? This day will be here before we know it. Don't let it be a marginal thought that passes through your mind on an occasional Sunday when you might hear about the return of Christ. 
If you don't ever think about this glorious day, then that reveals that you're fixed on the here and now. I'm not saying you've got to walk around like gloomy. This point, this point is to accelerate us to joy and obedience and, and zeal. Now, a full-on full life on this side. But this day, the, the guarantee that you will be delivered and transformed is just one more aspect of God's glorious love for you. So John's saying you've got to dwell on that. You've got to remind yourself that you're going to be changed very soon. And this new world is going to be here before we know it. And this hope then, everybody who has this hope, John says, it motivates us to be pure. It brings us to our final reality here of God's love. It's a love that motivates us to progressive purity now, right now. It's a love that's motivating for us to be progressively pure. Verse 3, he says, Everyone who has this hope, or everyone who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. So when we behold and believe the love that God has for us, it has a, a purifying effect, John says. It's a motivator. We're going to progressively grow in purity right now. That's, that's what should happen if you're getting this doesn't lead to, oh, we should just live however we want, right? You've not understood the love of God, if that's your response. So this love progressive, leads to progressive growth and purity right now, as we anticipate the hope of our future transformation. Now, John's using this hinge technique again to bring up a new topic, and he's going to transition us to this next paragraph. He's staying within this theme of children of God, but he's going to, he's going to talk about the lifestyle of God's children in the, in the next paragraph. We're going to look at that next week. But for now, I just want to draw your attention to the fact that we grow in true holiness only as we believe God's love for us. Is that fair? We grow in true holiness as we believe God's love for us, as we rest in His care. It's not the only thing we do, but that's foundational. As we receive Christ's work on our behalf. So, in other words, true growth is based on God's love for us and not the other way around. We don't grow to get in the family. We don't grow to get God to love us. We grow because he loves us. And this means, then, if you really want to get traction in your spiritual walk with Christ, if you really want to bear fruit, then you've got to build on the solid foundation of his love. There's no other way. If you're doubting his love, you won't grow. You have to learn to relate to him as one who daily receives his love and learn to live there, rejoice there, commune with him there. If you're constantly living in doubt of his love, the Father wants to teach you to truly know him, to know what he's like, to know the quality of his love to know the tenderness of his heart toward you. He wants you as his child to come and rest. And because it's this rest, in that place is where zeal is born. It's not just come and lay back. It is, I'm secure. Now let's go. I'm 
free to be holy, as the book title says. He wants you to come and rest. That's where zeal is born. It's where strength is born. It's where endurance comes from. It's where great risks for the gospel come from. It's from this childlike faith in the Father who loves you. And only there. So I want to end tonight just with a few practical considerations for how we might grow in obeying the command to behold God's love. All right? Try to zip through these. So, how, so what do we do with all this? Okay? You're telling me to behold the love of God. Okay, I see it. How does this translate into day-to-day activity? Well, this is obvious, but you want to then daily commune with Christ around his love. Okay? So that means if you're doubting, we've got to explore those doubts. Why are you doubting? What's going on there? What lies are you believing in that? You might need some help doing that. So get help. Ask for a brother or sister to come alongside you and help you work through those doubts. There may be sin in your life that's unrepented of, that you're neglecting, and so you're not experiencing the love of God, even though he does love you. So there's, there could be all kinds of things going on. But, but whatever it is, you be, you've got to begin to learn to commune with Christ on the basis of his love. So that looks like learning his promises of his love in Christ, his free offers of it, like Isaiah 55. Learning the character of the one who makes these promises. Right? Those who know your name put their trust in you, Psalm 9. So learn his promises. Receive his love daily. Humbly receive his love afresh each day. Why do I say that? We need it every day. We drift. I know my heart drifts toward performance. It drifts toward harsh thoughts of God. And I need Christ to refresh my perspective often of who he is. That's why why John commands us to behold the love of God. We need this. We We need to know and be reminded of his tender love towards us. Yield your emotions, okay? Yield your emotions to what he says about himself. So when you see something on the page of Scripture and your emotions don't agree, trash the emotions, not the text. Okay? If you don't feel his love, or you feel guilty because of sin, confess it and then receive his promises and walk in his love. And get help for the sin that you're habituated in. Because that's going to affect your experience of the love of God. But yield your emotions to what he says about himself. And then just practically ask for his help. Ask for him, ask for him to help you know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's Paul's prayer in Ephesians three nineteen. He prays for the church in Ephesus that they would know the love of Christ so that they might be filled with the knowledge of God, the, the fullness of God is what he says, meaning their maturity. So if the knowledge of love of Christ, growth in that means growth in maturity, according to Paul. It's exactly what's being taught here. So then get up and live like it's true. Get up and live as though what you've read, what you're memorizing is true, whether you feel it or not. Remember, those feelings are not trustworthy all the time. The truth is always trustworthy. So orient your life around what's true, regardless of how you feel. 
Ask yourself, what would my life look like in this area if I really believe God's promise? What would it look like? Would I be freed to do if I really believe that God loved me? What would I stop doing if I really believe that God loved me? And trace those out. Get. All right, quickly. Number two, practical consideration. Okay, beyond just communing with Christ on a basis. Uh, avail yourself of the graces of the church as a means of growing in God's love. The local church. Avail yourself of those graces. So if you're trying to do this outside of the, the, the church, you're not a member of a church anywhere, you're loosely committed, you're not really committed to the bride of Christ, you're going to flounder. You're in no man's land. It's dangerous out there. If you're at liberty, you're in double no man's land. Okay? So you need the church. You need help from the people of God. And the church is God's means of growing in God's love. You're hearing preaching right now in the church that's reminding you of God's love. God ordained that. Okay? So check that one. Preaching, obvious. Singing, obvious. Truth, relationships, discipleship. As we spend time together, people that encourage you, disciple you, love on you. That is just a little glimmer of God's love for you. So think about the people in the church that love you so well and you're just so secure around them because they love you, you know. That is just like a little microcosm of the love of God. So the church is intended to reflect God's love, to show the doubters what it's like. And then one other one I just want to mention real quick is the Lord's Supper. That's an ordinance. And I was talking to my son um, one day. He was here. I, lo I love it when he's with us when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper because I like to explain it to him. Because he asked me one day, he was like, why do we do this? It's like a Deuteronomy 6 moment. If you don't know what that is, just go look it up. Um, and I was like, and it, it just sort of like, I thought about it, and I thought, how do I say this simply? And I remember what I said choked me up. I said, it's, it's because Jesus doesn't want us to forget that he loves us. He does not want us to forget that he loves us. I think when we take communion, we emphasize the wrong thing sometimes. We emphasize the inward introspection because of the examine yourself passage in 1 Corinthians. What was happening in 1 Corinthians is they were getting drunk and the rich people were coming to the church and they weren't sharing their food with the other poor people of the church at the Lord's Supper. So Paul was like, examine yourselves to see if you're Christians. Right? Like, how can you do this? He was rebuking them around that. The purpose, if you look at Luke 22, the purpose of the Lord's table is that Christ is like, I'm doing this for you. Like, you can't do it. So just eat it. Just receive. That's the purpose. I love you. This is an expression of my love for you. This is, he washed their feet to show them as an example right before he gave them the table of what this was going to look like, what this means, what the cross means. All of that is, is Christ serving his saints. So the Lord's Supper is this. We call it communion. Communion. Think about that. We commune with the Lord by his grace in the eating of the, in the, in the, eating of the table. So that's why we emphasize it so much um, and why it's necessary that we're, that we're there. All right, so avail yourselves of the graces. Last one. This is awesome. So we're going to end here. Remember that God is exceedingly pleased, and I have that in quotes because that's John Owen. Um, remember that God is exceedingly pleased when you think of him in this way. As the God of all love. Give me like two more minutes. 
and we're going to be done. I, I, seriously. I'm going to read you these quotes, but it's, it's kind of archaic English. You'll have to read it slow so that we can absorb it. All right? Here's some golden pastoral insight from John Owen I want to leave you with. It is exceedingly acceptable unto God that we should thus hold this communion with him in love, that he may be received into our souls as one full of love, tenderness, and kindness toward us. How unwilling is a child to come into the presence of an angry father? Consider then this in the first place. Receiving of the Father as he holds out love to the soul gives him, that's God, the honor that he aims at and is exceedingly acceptable unto him. He goes on to describe how both believers and unbelievers alike have these harsh thoughts of God. Here's what he says. He says, men are afraid to have good thoughts of God. They think it a boldness to eye God as good Gracious, tender, kind, loving. And I speak of the saints. But for the other side, meaning unbelievers, they can judge him hard, austere, severe, almost implacable and fierce. The very worst affections of the very worst men and most hate of him. Now, there's not anything more grievous to the Lord nor more subservient to the design of Satan upon the soul than such thoughts as these. Satan claps his hands, if I may say so, when he can take up the soul with such thoughts of God. He hath enough, all that he doth desire. It is exceedingly grievous to the Spirit of God to be so slandered in the hearts of those whom he so dearly loved. Assure thyself, then, there is nothing more acceptable unto the Father than for us to keep up our hearts unto him as the eternal fountain of all that rich grace which flows out to sinners in the blood of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are um, profoundly grateful for how you've loved us. Just think about how Paul says that it's unsearchable, it's, it's unplumbable, the depths of your love. And so I pray for all of us tonight that you would help us know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we would come to know and to believe the love that you have for us, so that we would be filled with the fullness of God, that we would be tremendously fruitful while we're here in these decaying bodies as we wait for the resurrection, that we'll maximize our eternal reward. We ask it in Christ's name.